This is one of a series of conversations, between renowned war reporter and journalist Holly McKay, and William Samedi, exploring his views and insights from his work and research at High Crown. What do you want to talk about? What do you want to talk about? This is all about you. Let's go. So you said you wanted to talk about why knowledge can be prison? Why knowledge can be prison, yes, yes. Is it possible to know too much? Well, the way I approach it is it's impossible to know enough, you know, because whatever a person can know is limited to your experience and to your angle of the way you look at things. Mm. And sometimes we lack that perspective of the limitation of what we know. Right. And we think that that's all there is to know. Right. And when we get to that point, that's where it's become a prison. Because I cannot communicate with anyone else that is not sharing my view. Because I'm forgetting that my view is just a perspective mm. of things. It's not the way things happen. You know, even if you take in your lifetime, something that happened to you when you were 12 years old, if you would have lived it with your eyes of 30, 25, or 40 years old, it would have been completely different. Right. But we don't make those change of perspective about what we know. We think it's all there is to know. And from that angle, we start relation. I think a major part of human nature in the majority of people, and not everybody, but the majority of people is this idea of absolutes, yes. where people want to know, you know, it's why a lot of people turn to religion. You know, organized religion. There are absolutes. There are yes. there are facts of things that you don't necessarily have to critically think about as much. Um, and so I think that there is a safety in that, and there's also beauty in that too. There's a beauty in simplicity. As humans, you know, we we look to that, and you know, and, and so if you just look at it from that point of view, is being in that knowledge bubble and and knowing you know, the, the absolutes of something in particular and then not going any further with it because you don't necessarily have to, does that mean that you're in a prison or are you just in a safe space? So let's, let's continue that because you mentioned religion and I would put science in the same mix. Mm -hmm. You know, when we think of science, we think of something that is objective. Right but it is actually not something objective. Right. Because even among scientists, there are disagreement. There are disagreement on... So the main reason we think science is something fixed is because of the math. Right. So we think that an equation is something that gives a sensation of exactitude Right. You know, like, like you were saying, it, there's safety in the math. There's the objectivity in it. Exactly, yeah. there's objectivity in it. But we need to understand that math is just a language like English, like French, like Spanish. I can lie using any language or I can tell the truth using any language. So scientists, actually, they are forced to express what they understand about the phenomena using math. Right. That way, they show it to someone of their friends or their colleagues who may agree or disagree. They test it. But sometimes, 
if everyone else in the room share the same understanding, they will agree on the math, even if it's wrong, until someone with a different perspective will say, you know what? There is something wrong because your assumption about reality, your assumption about life is not real. Because the math that you are able to prove is just limited to a certain aspect of life that you can control because you put the boundaries on how I'm testing that model. Mm. So even science can be dogmatic in itself and, I think and become a prison. I think a key word is control. You know, knowledge, knowledge can be controlled to a certain degree and what comes outside the box can't be. And I think that there are many vested interests in controlling knowledge um, that we see everywhere, you know, there's a, I think, is there a reason that the education system in the United States is so piss poor in most, you know, parts of the country? And what is there to gain by keeping people relatively stupid? Mm -hmm. um, you know, th there are bigger interests in that. And so, you know, from, I think, that perspective, I think knowledge can be a prison mm -hmm. in that sense. Because... Too much knowledge or too much ability to think outside the status quo of knowledge, you know, that's a danger to a lot of institutions and a lot of people and a lot of, um, you know, high powered places and things. And so I think, you know, looking at it like that, that's, that, that's a prison in itself. But we can also look at it, and what you're saying is, is, is so real, which is the concept of. Once I think of something, I tend to keep reinforcing what I think, talking to people who think like me. Right. And that forms a group. Right. And then that group has, has an objective to, to exist, to defend what we think. Right. And okay? that is, you know, that is the classic echo chamber, which is, it, you, you could it, argue it, that even the echo chamber doesn't exist, but in some ways, I mean, we have this idea that the internet brought about this ability to... Um, you know, see all these other perspectives that we didn't know before and read other sides of the coin and all of this kind of thing and this sort of vast sea of knowledge that the internet brought but you could also look at it the counter argument to that being it, it can only just reinforce what we already think we believe and so you can just seek out that particular perspective and information and when there's a flood of um, you know people telling you that you know, agreeing with your your mindset say uh you believe in pulling the troops out of afghanistan and you can read a thousand a gazillion articles that tells you the reasons why the u.s troops need to be out of afghanistan um and you can read none telling you why the troops still need to be in afghanistan so you know there's the argument that the internet doesn't necessarily made us more open-minded but it's reinforced that sense of closed-mindedness actually you know one thing is proven is when I think of something and I find like-minded people confirming my bias, I am less open to actually seek something else. Right. You no, know, because I, I find that safety. But we can even go at an individual point of view. So I have friends of mine who are building businesses or entrepreneurs in themselves or um, they're ch trying to change career, mm -hmm. however you want to look at it. They're going through a divorce, you know, um, very simple thing in life. But most of the pain come 
from not being able to decide how do I move on because everything they know about life is based on their past. Right. And again, that's the prison. Sure. You know, and, and again, that's the prison. And, and Knowledge is formed through the lens of our own experience. Exactly. You know, and again, going back to, um, you know, your, your growing up, you know, born in Haiti, growing up in, in Argentina, your yes. experience, you're going to look at the world differently to me if you exactly. grew up in, you know, Australia and yes. came here. And, you know, we have different experiences to draw on as to how we see the how world, make, you know. And how we make our next decision. Yeah. But we yeah. need to be aware that our next decision should take into account our experience. Our next decision should be limited to the problem I have in front of me and what's mm. the best solution. But in order to, to problem solve, we can only draw on what we know. And that is past experiences or, you know, the advice of the people that we hang around. You know, we can't just pluck up necessarily a solution out of, out of nowhere. So you know, my solution to getting to the airport faster might be, okay, well, I'm going to take a plane. Well, I didn't have a plane to take, so I can only draw on my past experience, which is, okay, I'll get an Uber and it's going to take me 60 minutes. So, you know, there is a say among, among researchers and scientists that, you know, whenever you're trying to build a model, you say, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. Okay. So we usually think that when I look at reality, I'm looking at reality. We're actually not. So just to give a simple example, you can have a hundred data points, mm. but before you look, you have an idea of how the world works. You have a model of the world in your head. And when you look at the world, what you actually do out of those 100 data points, you pick the one that confirm your understanding of the world, and then you move on. Right. So that means before you look, your biggest assumption is, I understand the world. Right. Okay? And that understanding of the world is based on your culture, is based on your experience. And if you need then to relate to someone else who is different than you, with a different experience, a different understanding, both of you looking at reality will put, pick different points. Mm -hmm. And then they sit together trying to explain to each other why the world is a certain way. Mm -hmm. The conclusion of that is always conflict. It will be conflict with myself because my 20-year-old self is different than my 40-year-old self. But my 20-year-old self, probably my parents are expecting me to behave a certain way. But I went through life and at 40 years old, I think differently. So that's my conflict with my parents. Mm -hmm. That's your conflict with yourself based on values you had before and then your values change. So conflict is just the result of thinking we know the world. Because once you understand you don't have the truth, but you can only have perspective and opinion, things become simpler. Because you have to be open. And that's the danger that goes into artificial intelligence when it is used just based on machine learning and data science and however you want to call it, big data, without causal loops. Mm -hmm. Because what we're doing right now with, uh, with this if I, if I may continue on this, it's like, you just look at data 
of history or the past. But the main limitation of that, even if you look at a very simple history book, the person writing that book had an understanding of how the world works. Right. And had a limited access to available data that the people at that time were recopulating. Well, history is subjective. Exactly. I mean, our history books describing Second World War in America are going to be very different to history books describing Second World War in Japan or... There we go. You know, there we go. in Italy or wherever. So it's... it's That's exactly uh, what it is. It's just an opinion based on who's looking. But there's another limitation is based on the data that was collected. Right. So you have a limitation on the data. So now when you're feeding a data limited data because there's so much more that you don't know that you needed to collect mm. there's so much more that influenced that phenomenon that you never thought of looking sure. at so based on that limitation you put it in a machine with the certainty that the answer is right right all you're doing is augmenting the you the existing human being yeah okay so we have conflict today because we're prisoners of our knowledge. We don't move in life. We don't make that next big step. We cannot solve that problem, that divorce. We cannot make that great investment because it will come in a way that I don't know how to deal with it because I'm looking into my past to find an answer. Right. But now we're doing something even worse because human beings go to bed. <laughs> they right. sleep at night. Or they may find a friend. They may fall in love. They change perspective. The machine won't go to bed and we're asking them to make decision based on limited data that they found sense out of it instead of trying to train the machine the way you do with human being which is what is the cause mm -hmm. what is the causal loop but it's it's too damn hard to do it it's easier just to put the data and let the machine figure it out you know but we're putting limited data it's like in life like we're saying your view of the world puts you in conflict with any other human being if you don't know it's just a view. If you think you know the truth, right. you will be in conflict. Right. Now we're dealing with machines that think they know the truth. Most of what we're calling artificial intelligence, that's what it is. Sure. It's just data. Well, you know, and that's the whole, I mean, that's, that's the, the next evolution of machine learning is being able to predict what it is that you want or what you know and that's that's the, the point of where they're going with that is to analyze a, a person i mean they're still doing it now i mean isn't that what what alexa and whatever those echo things do is they 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 get to know you a little bit and then start to predict your tastes and your so i'll tell you i'll tell yeah. you a funny story about about those machines so Let's say you have uh, a machine that goes through the, the kind of music you listen to uh, and you're going through a sad period of your life right? and you're just listening to sad stories and the machine uh, start learning your behavior based on that moment you're going through. Right. And then later you, go, you get out because you find someone you love, you know, you were on a breakout, a breakup. You, you find someone you love and then you're having a great time and then you just put your music again. Right. So the machine most likely will think you're sad. Right. And play the bad music again. 
right. the music that makes you sad again. And then it will reprogram itself when it's learned that you're not sad anymore. Here we go. Yeah. Here we go. But you need to be using it. Okay. Sure. So the thing about machine learning is it needs data of the past. But what about if we know the cause? What is the cause? Why am I listening to music now? I'm listening to music because I'm sad. Right. Okay, so why am I listening to music now? Because I'm looking at this beautiful sunset with someone I love. It's because I'm happy. So that's the cause. So when I explain to the machine the cause, when I, when I know the cause, it's very different than building models on the data. Sure. Because it's easier to adapt faster and less arrogant in terms of thinking that I know the truth from sure. a human being and from the machine point of yeah. view. I mean, I have, I have little doubt that, I, I don't know, I'm not a tech person, but I have little doubt that, that machine learning will get to that point at some, you know, in the not too distant future. I think, I think we're arrogant as human beings to think that we're the only ones who can, you know, think a certain way or, or you know, predict emotion or have all of that. I really think the way that things advance is it will get to that point where they can read. Feel. You know, feel, read, anticipate. And then you're looking at a whole other branch of ethics of, you know, what is appropriate in terms of, you know, being able to read someone's mind or read their emotions or read their understanding. Um, and I think that's going to, you know, create a new space for, for ethics and, and, you know, what is acceptable and what's not. Yeah, and I, and I think we're at that point right now. Mm. You know, I, I do believe it's like, again, whenever I talk to someone and we look at our past as human being, it's not, it's not pretty. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's violence, it's conflict, and it's, uh, it's uh, I don't know, you know, some people are born smarter, some are not. Some people are smart, but they didn't have the right platform. And some people are less smart, and they do have the right platform. Sure. And, you know, and all that is our past. And yeah. all that is what we know of the world. So I don't really think that we should stay with that as a fact and from that build a future. Because again, we'll be bounded by our knowledge of the past or our knowledge of what we think we are. You know, even in a person's life. And, and I go, because this is, this is beyond, this is, this is like a very simple task. You know, I look at my life. I never thought I would be a dad. Because I didn't know how to be a good one, you know. So, but if I stayed with that and never learned how to become a good one by being a dad, mm. I would have lost that experience because I would be limited to what I knew of the world. Sure, <laughs> you know it's funny, and I don't, I don't have an answer for that. But that just reminded me. So last week, I was staying in South Carolina with my my goddaughters who are eight and two, almost three. And of course it was Christmas and so we're preparing the Santa gifts and taking them for Santa photos and and the eldest Lily is sort of at that age where she still believes in Santa but she's starting to question it. Uh -huh. And you know, of course we you know, my best friend is is reinforcing Santa Claus is coming, da da, da. I honestly said nothing because I have an issue with and I'm not a mum, but I feel like I don't think I can lie to my kids and mm -hmm. tell them that these 
mystical creatures exist. I just don't think I want to even go down that path. Because then I'm like, am I depriving them of a childhood? If I don't tell them the Easter Bunny and Tooth Fairy and all this other bullshit is real, is that wrong of me? And anyway, so it got to the discussion, you know, between Kira and I about when we figured out Santa wasn't real and who told us. And, and I just thought about it and I thought... I remember I sort of had a few vague ideas and then, you know, somebody confirmed it to me and it really wasn't that big of a deal, but that I was still able to pretend Santa existed for other people. And I just kind of thought of this this idea of like, at what point do we all get to where we realize this sort of isn't real and does it have an effect on us? Mm-hmm. And then also, is somebody lying? Like the idea of the people you trust, your parents, your teachers, whoever, just blatantly telling you these stupid lies. Mm-hmm. I mean, does that have a detrimental effect that I didn't think we're, you know, we walk down the street, we're not affected by it, but mm-hmm. it just made me think is, is a blatant lie like that, how does that impact the way we see the world mm-hmm. and that way that we receive knowledge from people we trust? Mm-hmm. And is there going to be a culture shift where this sort of Santa Claus shit eventually just goes away? <laughs> you know? Anyway, I had this really long, like, (laughs) thinking about, I've been thinking about it for a week, because I was like, is it wrong? Is it right? Is it wrong? So, the thing is, parents or people you interact with, that you are lucky, they love you, they love you. Yeah. And each person expresses that love a different way. Yeah. So, I think, you know, the story of Santa Claus and, 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 and helping because children, you know, they have so little information about the way the world works, actually. Mm. So they have their own imaginary way of how the world works. Right. So as a parent, you're compassionate. So you help them build their world the way they can understand it. Right. And you keep them in it. And as they move in life, they keep asking you more questions because they're building that understanding of their world. And you fill in with reality, more and more reality. And then I'm just going to make a counterpoint to it because it's something I thought about a lot, you know, when we were wrapping the presents and, and Kira was kind of giving them the crappier presents were from Santa mm-hmm. and the slightly better presents was from her and Martin, her husband. And I thought, and she said it something really, something I never thought about. And she said, because I, I don't want my girls to get the, you know, good presents from Santa. And then there are other people who's, Families cannot afford to get them good presents, so mm-hmm. they get a pair of socks from Santa. Mm-hmm. And someone else gets a bike, and someone else gets a sock. Mm-hmm. What is that teaching us about Santa Claus then? And, you know, okay, if Santa is supposed to be giving the gifts to everybody, why is he giving certain kids something great? Better, and, better, better, you know, better. and, and yes. it, it's something I never thought about. And I thought, yeah, what are we teaching them about that? Like this sort of, this, this being who's supposed to be a neutral being, mm-hmm. And yet he's favoring certain children over others. And when they go to school and, you know, is Santa giving you... Different yeah. things. Yeah. Yes. And I thought that's... And that that was kind of one of those aha moments for me. It's kind of, again, reinforced my yes. already lingering ideas of I didn't want to pretend that Santa existed. Yes. But, but, but again, this is, this is a grown-up person talking about yeah. understanding of the world. Because th- there's a line of thought here. So the brain... And that, that is completely related to what we're saying about our limitation of what we know. Yeah. So when the brain approach reality, you don't look at reality. 
what you approach is your understanding of reality. Right. So a child's mind, there are certain worlds they can understand with certain data point, just to look at it that way. Mm. And as they build that data point, as they build that world, the parent helped them feed into it. Mm. As the brain, because it's a physical thing, you have connection of the neurons, dentrids, axon, that are transmitting and connecting a certain way to create a path. Mm. And then that is what we call a thought. Mm. But what's feeding that into that brain is you as a parent. You're helping them by the questioning, by observing, by your behavior, what should you put in your mental model that makes sense, what shouldn't you put? But you cannot, it's like you would break them down to try to put your model in their brain because we as parents, our job is to give what the other can receive, not what we want to give. Mm. Because you can never give more than someone else can receive. Everything you give above that is ego. Right. So through questioning, you help your child complete his image of the world. As they grow, they keep asking because they can process more. The problem we have in life, even as adults, we think at some point, that's it. Right. What we know is. Right. And we forgot that in reality, mm. our brain is just as limited as a child's brain when it comes to understanding what life is about or what my world is about. Because I can be a lawyer, an accountant, uh, a trader, or like a hedge fund guy like, like any one of my friends, you know, we were trading. And at some point you say, I want to do something else. Sure. Again, you need to expand your understanding of life. You need right. to so you, you're always like that child. Right. So our thing with it is, if, we're going, if, we, if we go again to the specific question, when do I tell a child what is real or what isn't? In reality, you don't need to choose that because they will ask. Right. Because as they evolve, they realize, then, oh, there's no room for that anymore. I think the key word is, irrespective of age, is, is curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if you look at if you look at children that have no inhibitions, I mean, they're putting everything in their mouth. They're you know touching. They're using all the senses to to look at something. Um, that you get to sort of a certain point and you realize that that's not appropriate anymore. You know, it wouldn't be appropriate for for uh, us to start like licking the floor or licking the grass or you know but it's like when do you lose that curiosity or how do you get it in other ways and I think the biggest thing I see and the biggest thing I see with people who, who essentially I almost want to say get old I, I think curiosity is the the youth elixir because when you start to stop questioning yourself the world people why things are happening the way that they are or you know, essentially wanting to learn, which is goes hand in hand with curiosity. Um, you know, what is left at that point? You know, what is all you have is a driven, ego, purposefully yeah. driven person. Yeah. And suffering. And suffering, and you and you sort of sitting sitting in a in a the time warp, so to speak. There we go. Because life will throw things at you that require to be like that little child looking at the world at a different perspective and keep growing that understanding of the world. Mm. 
that's what experience is about that's mm-hmm. what life is about that's why at some point you get out of your house and you start going out of the world because there are answers your parents do not have right right in my case there are answers my culture didn't have right in my in my in my case there are there are questions I didn't know to ask yeah you know and all that keeps you evolving all that keeps you expanding right you know and 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 when you go through it you understand we have a problem of understanding we don't have a problem of limited resources right no we have a problem of understanding because your reality is limited by your mental model of who you are and what the world around me is when you change that the world changes around you mm. It's the other way around. When you change that, then you know what to do. Then you build the science. Then you build that company. Then you find that person you're looking for because you shifted your understanding, the data point, your mental model, like that child that needed Santa. We're all have somewhere in our head still believing in Santa Claus mm. that is giving us a gift. At some point, we need an adult brain, which is like you call it, the evergreen brain that mm. keeps understanding whatever I think I know is just the start. Right. And I need to keep expanding. That's when you get out of that prison. And I think too, the, uh, knowledge is, with, with knowledge comes responsibility. And there's a certain, I think you have to be a certain type of person to want to take on that responsibility. And then what we're seeing a lot of in the culture today is the A, cancel culture, and B, the victim, um, everybody's a victim, you yes. know, and it's easy to kind of blame other people, and and there's a, a sense of self-responsibility that, that I really think is, is sort of missing a lot, or that we're not being, um, that's not being fostered, you know to take responsibility for your actions and behaviors and, and that doesn't necessarily mean you're to blame for them but you're totally responsible for how you react to them and how you process them and I think that there's sort of a strange uh, I don't even know the word for it but a strange kind of thing I guess we're going through right now in, in society where we're sort of losing that a little bit and I don't know what the impact of that is um, but I think knowledge does come responsibility and it's not something that everybody necessarily wants to take on. Um, I know in my early days of war reporting, someone had sort of said to me, um, you can turn away, but you can never again say you didn't know. <laughs> so it's like, do you A, turn away from something that you think people should know about or B, um, do you take okay, well, I can never say again that I didn't know, so what am I going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And I think, again, you know, everyone has a different path, but I think what is the responsibility that comes with knowledge and how much are, are individuals willing to take on with that knowledge? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I, I, I love the, the line of thought, the responsibility of having access to knowledge. Mm. You know, um, because many of us, myself included, it took me a lot of understanding to realize that I was privileged. Mm. That there are certain things that I expect to know that I knew 
that not everybody knows them. Yes. You know, very simple thing like, uh, oh, that there is interest rate, that there is investment, or that there is family, or that, you know, very, very simple thing about property rights, something, right? you know, it's like things that I give for granted because of the way I was raised, and then you, you see people going through life, they don't even know those little simple things, and their life is complicated because of something I had access to that they didn't. Right. And... When you're saying that responsibility of access to knowledge, I think the way out of that is how can we, each one of us, understand that it is our responsibility to know more? It is our responsibility to look for the answers. It is our responsibility. Says who? Because if you're not looking for the answers, who will look for them for you? But to a lot of people, the answer will be, well, that's not my problem. They'll stay in their problem. Yeah, that's what I'm just saying. Like, it takes a certain type of person to accept that responsibility. Exactly. Whereas a lot of people just sort of look at you and say, well, who says it's my job? I don't, I don't have to. Of course. I don't and, have to know anything I don't want to know. And that's the issue, no? Yeah. And that's where the pain and the suffering comes. Right. Because at some point, reality will shift in front of you. And you have that responsibility once you see that shift, like you said, once I see that new information, what can I do about it or not? Do I stay with my old model of the way the world was working or do I do something with that? Well, pain is a call to change. Exactly. So, but not everybody sees that or you know, accepts there, that. There is that sentence that I like of the Buddha who mm. says, pain is unavoidable, but suffering is optional. Right. Things will happen to you that will cause you pain to change. But if you stay in that pain, which is suffering, that's up to you. Right. Okay? So, and that's the prison. Again, because suffering is the prison of knowledge. Right. Because when reality forces me to realize that my understanding of the world is not correct, that's painful. My next choice can be I stay with it, which is suffering, and I go to conflict with myself and my neighbor. Or... I grow, which is let me amplify my understanding of the world. Mm. Let me move beyond that prison of what I know, mm. of what I've received or what I've experienced so far, and let me be something different. Right. And that's never ending. That is the real never ending. And that's why the fear of making that step is because we don't understand how much more powerful each human being is. Right. Because once you align yourself with that thought that it is my responsibility to find the answer of what is going on in my life, you become completely expanding every day. I think, again, that personal responsibility when you find out that Superman's not coming and nobody can come and save you. Here we go. Then you know that... The only power is, is from within and that's when you can make the change because it's coming from you and you're not trying to find the external saviors of That's exactly right. And the mo- because the moment you understand that, then you express it through my next choice. What is mm-hmm. my next choice? Okay, what's my next business decision? What's my next investment? What is my next career move? Mm. How do I answer to my child? How do I answer to my... Um, um, 
the most important person in my life? How do I react to that guy screaming at me or how do I react with that guy smiling at me? Mm. Each situation in life becomes that opportunity to expand my understanding that I only have perspective. Mm. And it is my responsibility and mine only to know what is my next decision and is it in line with the situation I'm in, not with what my history or my past knowledge is. And that's the conflict we need to solve right. in our brain. And then I'm going to throw one more caveat in there, which is you, too much knowledge or too much to draw upon. Sometimes, you know, as a writer, it's a term that we sometimes use as, as journalists and writers, is analysis paralysis. Yes. And that is where the there is as well. so much information that you might know about a particular topic because you've just researched it and read it and interviewed and been here and been there. And then you get to the point where you need to go into 1,200 words and it's analysis paralysis. And, you, you know, I, I've experienced it where you just sort of, you don't know that right decision to make of what to put here, what to put there, you know. And that's also in personal decision making, something I think we need to be aware of too. And I think something I've learned as I've gotten older, a great quality to have is decisiveness. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you know, decisiveness. And I think that's one of the things that makes a great leader, obviously, is someone who doesn't procrastinate. And it doesn't mean that they make rash decisions. It just means that they, you know, are willing to go, well, maybe I don't know if I'm right and I don't know if I'm wrong, but I need to make a decision and this is the leap of faith in a way that I'm going to make. Exactly. You know, that's, 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 that's an important point of how we tie what we're talking about, the limitation of knowledge, with the responsibility of a leader making decisions. Mm. And I would say something is, is the same thing if we're talking about the president of a company, the president of a country, or you being the president of your life. Yeah. Because we're all at some point yeah. need to make that call. Right. And procrastination is not an option. No. No. You can be a warrior confronting an enemy coming, or you can be, what do I do with my child in front of me asking me a hard question? Right. Or I can be the president that I need to decide where do I allocate budget or do I send those troops? Okay. Right. So in the end, it's about making decisions. That's what leadership is about. But decisiveness, I think when we understand that whatever we're saying, I don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. So decision making becomes a learning step. Mm. So it's like, I'll go to my world what I understand, which is about investment. Okay. And you said um, analysis paralysis. You come to a point where if you keep analyzing, you'll, you won't learn more. You'll just put noise in what you already knew. Right. But that's not a problem of data. That's a problem that my mental model, my understanding of the world, don't know what to do with all that data. Right. But I need to know that my understanding of the world is limited. You understand? Sure. I need to know that. So I'll make that investment decision. And I say, what's my worst case? And then the moment I make that decision, as a leader, it is my responsibility to, to own it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Was I right or wrong? And when do I shift? Mm. Because if I have no way in my decision process, the opportunity to shift, 
I wasn't a good leader because actually I become prisoner of my decision, which is not what a leader is supposed to do. Mm. And that's an interesting trait that I've sort of that we see a lot of now in um, in, in the political spectrum on on either side is this idea that you know we we criticize the flip flop or we or we sort of criticize people and our politicians when they change their stance on something as opposed to seeing it as you know, an evolution we look at it as a terrible quality but they said that in 1988 that drugs were terrible and and now they're endorsing um, you know, federal marijuana use and oh my god how terrible is this flip flopper well why are we you know why is that the trait that we seem to hold up it's you know it's it's, it's funny because that, that makes me a, a personal anecdote you know it's like I remember the first time I was like uh, allowing to a board meeting of investment committee mm-hmm. you know so I was the youngest guy they brought me in you're smart okay let's see what you think and one of the more senior guys and it looks like being a senior guy means that I can say things as I, I know what is gonna happen so one of the partners said if I make an investment and keep losing money I'll stay with it and I start laughing right you know what I mean I said that was the because in my head I say how stupid can someone be right. that you're willing to lose money right. instead of recognizing that you made a mistake. Yeah. You know what I mean? The ego. In my head, I, mean, I start laughing and all the people in the room looking at me and say, this guy doesn't know what's going on. Why are you laughing? You know? And then, <laughs> for me, it was like, my, I laugh for two reasons because at that moment, I know I don't want to work with this guy because if you're able to do that, I don't want to be in the same ship with you. Mm. <laughs> That's my first thing. Thank you very much for saying that out loud. And the second thing is, how stupid can someone be like that? You know what I mean? And then, of course, I got confronted by, by the partner that came and said, mm. why, 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 why are you laughing at me in the meeting? I said, I'm just stupid. I laugh at everyone. Yeah. You know? And I got away with it. You know? But it's, it's okay. But what I'm trying to say is, we, don't, we need to make the difference between decisiveness and stupidity. Right. You know what I mean? Of course. Decisiveness is saying, I cannot know much more than what I know now within the limited time to make a decision. Right. That's a leader. Right. But my decision is just one more step to the learning process because I need that new data to know if I'm right, then I move faster. Yeah. And if I'm wrong, I can still shift. Yeah. Because if I'm in that decisiveness, again, you know, we have the leaders we deserve. You know? So if we like safety and we're not willing to expand, so we want someone to tell us that the way of Santa Claus is always there. Right, the status quo. Exactly. Or we can say, you know what? I'm willing to look. I know what I know is just limited. What else there is? And then you choose leaders according to that understanding. Right. You know, And then you make your life according to that understanding. And that's when you start understanding it's a never-ending process. And you can actually be very good at it the same way you can be very good at not wanting to work. Yeah. It's a choice. Sure. It's a choice of do I get out of that prison? Do I get out of that prison of the image I have of myself? Do I get out of that prison of the image that I think a leader should be? Do I understand that my brain is just the capacity to make my brain is as good as my mental model that's Mm -hmm. what it is you can be really smart but if you are not 
equipped with the right mental model. What is smart though? Smart is just a physical thing for me.、Mm. You know, so I make the difference between smart and intelligent. Right. So smart is like the capacity to process and connect data,、mm-hmm. like any computer chip. That is smart. Some brains are smarter than others. Okay. Then there is intelligence. Intelligence is the ability of any being to give the right answer to the situation I'm confronting. That is intelligence. It has nothing to do with knowledge. Right. It has nothing to do with smart. It has to do with do I have the right answer for me in front of that situation I'm confronting.、Mm. You can be a plant. You can be an animal, a planet, a solar system, a galaxy, whatever you want to call it. Do am I able to keep giving the next right answer to stay alive?、Mm. That is intelligence. It's the capacity to give the right answer to the situation I have in front of me, and that depends on your mental model more than how smart you are. So you're looking at.、Um I mean, instead of even going beyond the mental model, and there was that's the whole concept of grit. What is grit? Grit is the thing that's going to keep you oh, successful. You ne- yeah, that you never, you never give、grit. up. So it's not necessarily about being the most inherently talented at something. It's being the having the willingness to go the long road. Yes, and that's you know, and I guess is that bleed then into being able to stay on track to get the knowledge you need. To make that decision, oh, so, or to set yourself out of that prison. Exactly, because because now I understand what you mean by grit.、Yeah. But we have to be careful of stubbornness, right? Which is again the counterpart, right? You know, because what when we, I think of grit, I don't necessarily think of stubbornness. Got it. But stubbornness, I guess, has a negative connotation that to me grit doesn't have, and maybe that's just social conditioning. <laughs> but it's 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 okay. I mean, I I just want to make sure that as long as we're、yeah. talking about a commitment to constant learning, yeah, and a commitment to knowing that. I have to find a way out, right? You know, and whatever decision I make, whatever step I make, is just part of a learning process, right? You know, and that's the best decision I can make with what I have now. And then, as more data come in, I will expand my understanding of what's going on, and I push through if I'm right, and I have a way out if I'm wrong, right? If we don't allow that. In our life, my life, your life, everybody's life, as a decision, we are leaders of our own life. Right. Same thing with an investment manager. That's why I know I didn't want to work with that partner because、mm-hmm. he wasn't able. He wouldn't recognize a mistake if that would go against his image.、Mm. Same thing if you're managing a company. Company, company have a strategy. They put a CEO. The CEO's job is to keep the strategy. That's why the average CEO lasts eighteen months. You know of of the big companies, right? Because none of them are willing to change the strategy. They just have a very high pay package. You、mm-hmm. know, if I feel it's not my responsibility, because no one really wants to go for the big change. No、mm-hmm. one really wants to go to to the, to to what needs to be done. Yeah. Because you have to look decisive. You know, so anywhere you want to look at it, as an investor, you cannot think that what you know of the world before the decision. Is all that you can. That all that is to know. Sure. And the moment you make that, and and that's the whole concept that I I try to push down into AI again, which is how 
can we talk about expanding mental models instead of trying to f make models out of the data that is available mm. you know instead of looking at history the way history is it's thinking how different could it be if i could make different decisions yeah you know allowing that possibility because th there is that sentence that we all learn when we're schooled that history repeats itself mm -hmm. i'm totally and fundamentally against that and i disagree completely mm -hmm. so there is that saying that history repeats itself i completely disagree with that uh you know and and i think that that's cause of a lot of trouble in, in, in personal life and, and with our history as the human race on earth um, I don't think that history repeats itself. I think that through schooling, uh, we learn to behave as history. You know, through education, we learn to behave as we learn through history. Mm. Um, because what happens is, if you look at the history, all you see is conflict, is disagreement, and this person will disagree with me. This person will disagree with me. That person behave a certain way based on their past and everything. I internalize that. That's my mental model. And then I go out to the world and interact. So the world can give me a hundred different stimulus, but I will only pick the 10 that are in line with my understanding of that world based on history. Mm. And I react only to those 10. Mm. And then I'm surprised when I see the result looks like something I already knew before acting. Right. Because I am, through my action, repeating history. Right. There is no such thing as history repeats itself. Every time I have a choice. So schooling and education actually put us in prison of what we learn. Right. If we don't learn the right thing, which is it's about learning, it's not about what I learned. Right. It is about learning. And as long as it is about learning, it's never about history. Right. It's about intelligence. It's about what is my next decision based on what I'm confronting right now. Right. You know, and this is what we need to understand when we're making decisions in our life, individually, career, as an investment manager, as a trader, as a portfolio manager, as a businessman, as a friend, as a world leader, whatever you want to call it. Mm. It has to be understanding that history is just a limited understanding of all the available possibilities that I didn't even look at because I didn't know to look for. Right. So that cannot be enough as a guide. If it is a guide, at least should it be a guide not to repeat. Right. Or at least an understanding of an humbling of I can do much more than what I already did. Right. That is the responsibility that we have, each one of us, in our own life. Absolutely. And sort of segueing a little bit on that, something else that I was thinking about was facts and emotions and sort of the whole idea, especially when it comes to decision-making. And again, it's, it's really relative depending on what the decision is, but how much role our emotions play in the decisions and sometimes it's sometimes it can it be a, it, it's often 
looked at like a negative thing. That's wrong. You know, it's looked at like it's yeah, it's looked at like you got to take your emotions out of the equation. You've got to focus on the facts. That's you know the general consensus. I think that there are certain changes to that being made now, and that sort of people are again, this is genderizing it, but but the uh, sort of the tip the archetype of the female decision maker mm -hmm. bringing more emotion to something than the male um, and that was sort of always a little frowned upon and now mm -hmm. it's kind of being embraced I think slowly and a little bit more about um, you know the differences between the male and, and, and the female um, but yeah it just sort of is that question of emotion being factored into decision making necessarily a bad thing so I, I love that question. So from, from a brain point of view, fact and emotion, data and emotion is the same. Because it's just a data point to make a decision. Mm -hmm. You know? So emotional input is just a non-formal or a non, I don't know how to explain it, but it's just one more input into my decision making and my understanding of the world in my brain. So there are things from a cognition point of view that I get faster there by connecting emotionally. Sure. But that doesn't mean they're wrong. It's just part of my making of the mental model I have of the world. Right. I can connect to suffering or I can decide not to connect to suffering. Do you understand? But that doesn't mean the suffering isn't there. It's just what decision do I make with that data point? Do, was I educated to care about another one? Or am I making the conscious choice of caring or not? Mm. Do I care about you or not? That's a decision you make. You know? And so when people say, oh, is emotion part of the game? I mean, it's all about emotion. It's all about how you feel about a decision in the end. Because what is a good decision? What is a bad decision? From the thinking we're talking about, I never know because I keep learning. Mm. I don't know what is completely right. I don't know what is completely wrong. I cannot know because I keep learning. Mm. But what I can know is how do I feel about the decision I made when I made it? Right. Because that I do know. Sure. And some people have been trained not to care and some do care. Right. But that's your choice because even if you were trained not to care and you make that decision, but it still pains you. You'll deal with that with your psychologist later. Sure. You know what I mean? But yeah. what I'm trying to say is there is no such thing as uh, an emotionless decision. Sure. And one thing I've learned yeah, as a journalist, I, I learned, and, and it's something that I apply to myself, which I find to be very useful in decision making, is asking yourself, you know, and I, I learned this interviewing um, re refugees and, and displaced people. Um, in the Middle East, Iraq, and Syria, and I'm going to get a really different answer when I ask them what they think about a situation and what they feel about a situation. Because mm -hmm. they're two very different things, and I'm going to get two very different answers. And depending wow. on what it is that I'm going for, mm -hmm. sometimes I just want the facts, and I want, and so I usually then ask, "What do you think?" And that's you know, it's opinion, but it's I think this happened and this happened, and then you. Sometimes it takes a little longer to get to how, if you ask them how they feel right off the bat, they're usually going to shut down yeah. is what I found because yeah. to them it, it's so, it so cerebral that maybe then they're, and they're not necessarily 
fought the way we're taught to, you know, where we sort of, our society tends to indulge in its emotions a lot more. Um, just to put it broadly, often in, in the Middle East and in more some places, it's a lot more pragmatic. You don't have that indulgence period with your yourself and your emotions and what you think, what you feel, and, you know. So not to say that the feelings aren't there, but they just, they're a little harder to access. But I find in decision-making, especially when I'm making, you know, a difficult decision about something, I often have to ask myself what I think about it and what I feel about it. That's a and very it's a little bit like the head and the heart, you know, head versus heart, kind of. But you're going to, yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's a hack that I found. And then usually there's a middle point that I can find with it. Because you never, you know, again, depending on the decision, but you never want to be too much head too, and too little heart. Um, it's nice to be able to, if you can find that something of a middle ground. Hmm. Hmm. I, I to keep to keep on that. I, I, I think to move away from com, com, compromising things. Yeah. I, I, I tend to push things until I get to a point where I say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Um, but it's always about how do I feel about it. Yeah. You know, because the data is the first thing I get, and through the data, I connect with it. So data, in analyzing the data, you're probably then sort of analyzing what you think about the data. Exactly. And then it's that one step further to how you feel about the exactly. data. Exactly. Because I'm asking myself, what isn't there? Right. <laughs> you know, and what isn't that my intuition is telling me that I should look for or not? You, you see what I'm saying? Sure. I, I, because in the end, I have to go to bed and sleep. Right. Because if I make a decision I cannot sleep with, I'll be a worse leader tomorrow. Right. I'll be a worse husband tomorrow and a worse dad tomorrow. Right. So, so for me, but, but again, we have to think because when you have to make decisions on high pressure and limited time and limited data, you need to allow yourself to feel good about what you're doing because if you don't put that into the equation, you're destroying your ability to be a better leader tomorrow. Right. Because you're putting too much stress on the system. Right. So that means ask for help. That's why you don't make decisions alone. You, 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 the decision is yours as a leader, but it is your responsibility to ask around the people that may know better about something than you to, to make faster sure. what I need to know. Right. But I'll never make a decision I cannot feel good about it because otherwise I won't sleep. Sure. And that comes into somebody sort of taught me one time, um, and it's a principle that I've applied for a long time, which I find to be very useful is you essentially are the CEO of your life. your life yes. and you need but you need an advisory board of yes. people that you can trust yes and they may be a family member one may be you know an old friend another may be a, a colleague um, you know the ideal of it would be to have sort of a little bit more diversity but you know three or four people that you really trust that have your best interests and that can give you the best decisions about things professionally, personally, you know, whatever it is in your life. And that's the idea of, of it being your life um, and having the, the life advisory board, I guess, and being able to to tap into that. And I, I find that, you know, for me that there are sort of a few trusted people that I will always go to with decisions that might be so left to field of what, you know, that their expertise lie in, but because they trust in, you know, and want the best for me, I trust the advice they're going to give me. It doesn't mean I'm always going to take it, mm -hmm. 
but I'm going to walk away with it and I'm going to think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like being a leader, even of your life or of a company or of a portfolio, of a, it's a lonely job. Sure. Because in the end, it's you. But when you make enough decision and you're very objective about what happened to the result of your decision, you start understanding where your blind spots are. Mm -hmm. And that board of advisors should fill that blind spot. Right. So if you look at my team, I know exactly what I'm better than anyone else at and I know exactly what I need some help with. And I'll form my team around those weaknesses. Right. So what does that mean, weakness? I'm probably pretty good at them, but not the best at them. And you have to ask yourself, do I keep putting more energy in being best at what I'm number one at? Or do I work on that one that this guy's already one number one at it and it's better to have him on my team? You see, that's, that's a resource allocation decision on do you keep being better at what you're very good at and then surround yourself with people that know your weakness to fill that weakness? When you look at your life, you know the decisions that are hard for you, Holly, and you know the ones that you're pretty good at. Right. So the thing is, when I'm creating that board, do I bring in the people I don't want to listen to, or do I just bring people that will repeat and agree with me Right. on the things I'm not that good at? Right. And again, you can fall into that trap. Sure. But it is your responsibility to know your weakness and to bring in people that will disagree with you on those points because they're better than you at it. Yeah. And also, and again, just to, to make an awareness point on there, yes. is you also, I think, need to be aware of codependency. Yeah. We also need to be aware of that too. Yes. Because sometimes we can then become a little bit too codependent on the advisory board and not on our own decision making. So, and that's that's a learning curve I think I've gone through. In, in I the love past, that you brought it up. Is I've often, um, especially when I was younger and I was you know, running around the world and I didn't you know have the advisory board. And so I was very quick about making decisions and they weren't always right, but I got a lot of shit done and got mm -hmm. to it. And then I did find myself going through a period where I think I turned too much to other people to justify my decisions or to tell me the right thing to do because I was in a very confused and lost space. And then I had to do a lot of work to take it back, going, I love the advice these people are giving me, but I don't need to go to them with every little fucking thing. No, you don't. You know, and I found that that, that's, that was, again, a, something I had to unwire from my brain, is to be like, you can make this decision. It's not that big a deal. You don't need to go and ask, you know. Exactly. The, you, you have to delegate what, you know, the decision. You have to delegate where you want to seek advice and where you don't. You have to know yourself. Yeah, you have to know yourself. <laughs> Otherwise, you can create... Um, yeah. Codependency. Codependency. And that, again, will lead you into analysis paralysis and you'll get nothing done and you'll, you'll feel like you can't, you lose your own power of being able to make up your mind about a situation. Exactly. So as long as we understand it's about the learning, yeah. it is our responsibility to know and not to stay slave with what we know. That's I think that's, that's, that's the main point. And that's the main danger as well with AI, with your life, a company, or wherever, wherever someone needs to make a decision, is get out of that prison. And that's what I was thinking when I say knowledge is a prison. Yeah. If you think that you know before looking. Yeah. 
I think we've all been through periods of, you know, whatever it is where we feel that sense of being trapped in your own skin, where you feel yes. that you can't get out. Mm. And I think that, you know, the more we can do to remember, there is always a way out. There's we can't always, always see it straight away. We can't always, you yes. know, but there is always a way out. And it's really only, only on us to believe that and find that. And, and to know and to look for it. And to look for it. To know and to yeah. look for it. Yeah. And then, yeah. I think we, we covered a lot of angles. I think so. We went on a tangent. <laughs>